Today we're looking at 1 Samuel chapter 23, verse 15, through the rest of chapter 24. It's printed in your bulletin if you don't have your Bible. I think it's also going to be up here on the screen. Give ear now. This is God's word. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh, and Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day which the Lord said to you. Maybe they said more. Maybe they were whispering. I don't know. <laughs> Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the king! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against the, my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, Out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? And after whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you, and see to it, and plead my cause, and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is, it, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house? And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up.
to the stronghold. This is God's word. We're going to be starting a new series today, a new mini-series in Samuel. It's called Respect and Grace for the City. And this involves how to love the world, right? how to love the people around us and the different authorities that are in our lives. Um, we're going to be looking at, I mean, over the course in this text, we see sort of authority in politics, authority at work that we can relate it to, even in the church and in the family. And in today's passage, in the midst of the physical warfare that's going on between Saul and David, we see David actually engaging in spiritual warfare. Okay, he's wrestling with his own spirit and with the people around him. And he's dealing with oppressive and maniacal authority, and he's struggling to know how to respond. That's where David is. And so as David and Saul encounter each other in this text, we find also that their hearts are exposed. We don't just see their words, but their words and their actions are a window into their hearts. And we see what's really inside of them. And as we get to glimpse what's inside them, it prompts us to ask, what's inside us? So we're all going to be laid bare, I think, as we look into this text today. And so three points uh, in our sermon today. You can take notes there on page seven if you'd like. First, our spiritual warfare is outward and inward. Okay, our spiritual warfare is outward and inward. Second, our spiritual warfare impacts everyone around us. So it impacts everyone around us. And then third, our spiritual warfare is successful if we have the right friend. So our spiritual warfare is successful if we have the right friend. So first, our spiritual warfare is both outward and inward. And this is the first 15 verses of chapter 24. What we see here is a huge, what amounts to a huge temptation for David. And part of the problem is that for so many, even in our text, like they don't even see this as a temptation. You know, but David is caught right and i love i mean this is one of these passages where it just it reminds us that the bible is earthy okay the bible is not pristine the bible is not sort of what we like um it's not like hermetically sealed away from dirtiness or just the reality of life david and his men are in a cave and saul walks into the cave to go to the bathroom i mean i just i love this the bible is honest i mean this is the kind of stuff you get when you read the bible um, there's all kinds of things like this, but I just, I think it's helpful for us to know that, I don't know. I mean, you know, it's just, it's interesting to see this and given the amount of time that takes place between when Saul walks in and between when Saul leaves, right? All the activity that goes on, you get a sense of the length of time. And so you even get a sense of what Saul was doing, what kind of bathroom he was going. Okay. And I bring this up because it's in the text. Okay. If Saul were going number one, none of this could have happened. So there you have it. There you have it. And so Saul walks in to go to the bathroom. You know, conceivably he discards his cloak, sits down or, you know, however it was that they went back then. And all of a sudden, right, all of a sudden, salvation has come to David from one perspective. Right? Think about this. And and you have to know, um, I, I thought about this before in terms of like, well, come on, like, how could all this stuff go on? Like, how big were these caves, right? I mean, how does that actually work? Were they just like five feet away? How could they have this sort of discussion? And as I've done the research, they actually had, they, they have caves. You can go visit them. There are caves in this area of the world where you could literally play a full court game of basketball inside. Okay, so really, really sizable caves. And so this was not um, unusual at all. In fact, you know, it would make sense that David and his men would find a pretty deep, dark, you know, a pretty large cave to be able to go in. And so they're way in the back off, but they see Saul come in. And really what David is struck with is temptation. Okay, he's struck with temptation. And uh, I think there were three main kinds of temptations. I just want to give them to you because these are things that make what David was going through incredibly practical for us. Okay, first and foremost is the temptation for revenge. Okay, the temptation for revenge. David can finally get Saul back, right? Finally. I mean, think about this. If you've been reading along with us, you've been here with us, Saul has attempted murder on David multiple times. He's tried to kill him. So you could plead self-defense and get away with it. 
right? Saul has made his life miserable for years. Okay, for years, David is running away. David is living this life of an outcast. He's homeless for years because of Saul, because of what Saul is doing. And what Saul is doing is not even, it's, it's not even rational, right? Saul is engaging in this downward spiral. He's alienating people. But so Saul has dislocated David's family. You know, they're in Moab now outside the promised land just to keep him safe. He's threatened David's best friend, Jonathan, you know, whose life is in peril. He's killed David's other friends, and he's even killed God's priests. And David finally has a chance to get him back. Think about that. He's got a chance to get him back. And no one would question David for taking this opportunity. Even the men who were with him in verse 4 said, Look, God has done this for you. You know, one author said, is this temptation or divine providence? And I thought, wow, how many you know, situations do we get into with life, right? Where we think, oh, God must want me to do this because he wouldn't have presented the opportunity otherwise. Yeah, be careful. Be careful. Even the wording of the men, you know, they say to him, here's the day which the Lord has said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. It's like they're saying, David, do whatever you want. And I think, boy, we need to be cautious, don't we? If it's just up to what we want, sometimes that can lead us astray. Right? What this is pushing David into is a temptation for revenge. Not only for revenge, but also temptation for the shortcut. The shortcut. You know about the shortcut. Right? Sometimes we long to find that secret key right, or the, that major breakthrough that will instantly make life easier, okay? Even in the church, we do that. Here's the secret to a, a healthy prayer life, right? I've been looking for that my whole Christian life because it's just such a struggle, right? And yet, if someone could just deliver to me this secret, you know, this way that would make life so much easier, right? I mean, this happens at work, right? We're tempted to take the shortcut, we know we'll get away with it. We know we'll, no one will ask about it. We know that if they do ask, it's just common practice anyways. You know, we're tempted to take the shortcut. You know, David's life would be so much easier if he just takes Saul out, right? No more hindrances, no more frustration, no more despair. At least that's the lie that the shortcut tries to convince us of. Doesn't always deliver on that. No more running for David. He could finally take the throne. And again, no one would blame him for it. So David's encounter with the temptation to take the shortcut. And I think probably most significant here for David is the temptation to take God's promises but ignore God's means. Okay? To pursue God's promises outside of God's means. What does that mean? Well... God had promised David he'd be king, right? And the question comes, should David need to murder in order to get the promise? And this is a, this is a common theme throughout the scripture. I mean, it, it started in the beginning with Adam and Eve. The serpent comes and says, take the fruit and you'll be like God. You don't need to obey. You don't need to listen. Just take the fruit and you'll be like God. You know, being like God is a good thing in some ways, right? Imitating God, understanding what is good and evil, right? And yet to take the fruit was to go outside of God's means. God said, don't take the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, Abraham, right? God promised that through his son, all the nations of the earth would be blessed, that Abraham was going to have a child. And so when 75 years came, when Abraham was 75 years old, he starts thinking, wait a minute, <laughs> I'm not having a child. I don't have a child. I think the, the, you know, my prospects are going down and down and down and down. And yet God has this promise. And so Abraham and his wife, Sarah, they get together and say, well, why don't you just go and have a child with your maidservant, Hagar? You know, again, wanting to pursue the promise of God, but by committing adultery in order to do it. Culturally acceptable, but still against God's will. Against God's will. And so, again, we see that what this is, is a temptation for David to pursue God's promise, but not using God's means. 
And there is no more deadly temptation, I think, in all of life than this. Because the end, come on, the end is good, right? We want God's promises to come around. You know, when the church has given into this temptation, you have the Crusades. You know, we just want to see the whole world know Jesus. And if we have to kill him to convince him, then, well, so be it, you know. Sometimes Christians in politics act, act, act this way. I think sometimes there are people who, you know, toting their Bible will walk around speaking the truth to people because they just need to hear it, right? It's God's word. If you're offended by it, well, you're, you have a problem with him, not me, you know? And so people use that as an excuse to be rude, obnoxious, to not speak the truth in love, but again, trying to achieve God's purposes outside of God's means. One author said this, it was one thing to have the promise of the kingdom, which David clearly had, but how the kingdom should come to him was another matter. How is he going to take the throne? God's will must be achieved in God's way. The end that God has ordained must be reached by the means that God approves. And I think that in one way, if you boil down all of our sins, all the things that we do that don't please God, all the sins that we commit, in a sense, we sin. when we sin, we are acting as though we are God. Because we're saying that we get to decide what's right and wrong. We're saying that we don't care what God has said about what we should or shouldn't do. And so in a sense, we take the role of God. And that's what David would have been tempted to do. That's what he was being tempted to do, which would be to take Saul's life into his own hands and execute him. I remember, this is years ago, um, someone talking to me about the relationship between David and Saul and how David reacted to this temptation. You know, and the way that David, not just this time, but time and time again, loved and honored Saul. And I was in a position where I had a boss that I thought I was better than, you know, and, and I was thinking about this and, and just, I think David's temptation here really speaks to when you are the number two person, right? In an organization, in a ministry, even in a relationship, when you're the number two and your role is to serve someone else who's in charge, right? And I remember this person telling me, about David and Saul, and I just started crying because I knew what was in my heart. I knew the thoughts that I had had. I knew the visions of grandeur that I had had about, boy, if I were in charge, this is how I would do it, you know, and and the way that I vilified the person that I was supposed to be serving. You know, just being confronted with David's heart and how he responds. We're going to talk about it specifically, but again, I think that this that David is in this place in his life, he is the consummate number two. You know, he is a wonderful picture of what our role should be if God calls us to that kind of role. Any role where we're subjected to another authority, this is respect and grace for authority. So what what does David actually do? Well, he responds by cutting off the corner of of Saul's robe. It's interesting. And he goes, and there's a little bit of tension, right? Uh, The author gives us a couple of words. It's not a real long tension because you see that he cuts off off the corner of Saul's robe. Um, He probably did that because of what he had planned on doing later in the scene, right? So he has this idea of I'll cut the robe off um, and then I'll follow Saul. He probably has this whole thing all planned out by the time he gets there. And, and cuts off the corner of Saul's robe. But in a sense, this was an act that symbolizes his rejection of Saul's kingship. Okay, if you read through the Samuel narrative, there's a couple of instances where you see cloaks. One cloak is torn, symbolizing that Saul's kingship is being torn from him. Jonathan gives his cloak to David, which is a sign that Jonathan is giving up his own right to rule in favor of David. And so to cut off the corner of the robe really was to reject Saul's kingship. And even from that, David gets this sort of frightening feedback, okay? And it's not feedback from anything outside of him. It's internal. His heart struck him. Verse 5, 
after he did this, David's heart struck him because he'd cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And it's interesting. So he has sort of like heart palpitations. You know, he does this act and then he feels instantly convicted. There's a couple of different ways to think about this. I mean, so what we see here is that there are physical effects of conviction. Okay? And just to throw out, I mean, do you still have that? Do you have physical effects? Do, does your body tell you something? Mind, heart, you know, body. Do, does something happen to you when you, are, when you do something you know you shouldn't do? I mean, that's what happens to David. Right, he's climbing. He's sneaking up there. He cuts off the robe, and he just feels it. You know that feeling? I mean, it's like conviction, right? We feel bad because we did something that we shouldn't do. Um, and really, what this is—I mean, God has wired us this way. I think for a lot of us, we don't feel this way anymore, right? Sometimes we lose this sense of conscience, the sense of conviction. The Bible says that if we continue to ignore that, it will go away. It will go away, but it hasn't gone away for David. And David interprets this body language, right, as a message from God, um, even as a lesson from God. And it begins to inform then what he goes back and says to his men. But this is the same kind of signal that we receive if you stick your finger, you know, in a light socket, right? I mean, same kind of idea. It's an alarm, right? This happened to me yesterday, actually. Um, We've got a light that went out in our bathroom, it's, uh, it's one of these, it's like a dual switch that has a, it's got like a plate, you know, that it doesn't have a switch that flips up. You just hit the top or hit the bottom, it broke. So I was trying to pull it out to see if it would actually unscrew off so we could replace it. And I started pulling the thing, I was pulling the thing out and I felt this like, you know, for, and I'm like, ah, you know, I, sh- I kind of screamed and, and, and let go of the thing and I'm like, not a good idea, right? I mean, it's an alarm. It's saying, uh, do this and you're going to die. I mean, that's what my body is telling me. And um, so I, I pushed it back in and said, okay, I'm going to call my landlord and have them deal with it because this is clearly not something that I should be touching, not something I should be doing. Same thing for David, right? He realizes after the fact that he shouldn't have done even that. He could, I mean, it's interesting, right? Because you might think, well, he, you know, he was going to kill him and all he did was cut off his robe. But yet for David, his conscience is actually sensitive enough is conscious and sensitive enough because he knows actually that cutting off the robe is step one. You know, where murdering the king is step, you know, 15 or 20. And so David's conscience is attuned to where he, he just has, the, he, he has a sense early in the process. And boy, don't we need that. You know, the more quickly you can identify the temptation in your life, the better shot you have at dealing with it. Okay, so often too many of us, and this is true, this has been true for me, especially with habitual sins, the things that we struggle with all the time, right? Those things that we seem to always give into. If you be honest and actually step back and look and watch the progression of every time you give into that sin, usually there's probably about nine or ten decisions that you make, right, before you actually commit the sin. Okay, if it's stuff that you shouldn't look at on the Internet, for instance, okay, there's things on the Internet. Um, if, if, if you struggle with porn on the Internet, um, my experience has been that you usually have to make a few decisions at least. I mean, now it's getting so easy to where in one click you can see things you shouldn't see. But even aside from the number of clicks that it takes to get you to something on the Internet that you shouldn't look at, there are probably five or six decisions that you make mentally before you actually go to the search engine, before you actually go to a familiar website, right? And the key is to actually step back and ask yourself, how many decisions am I making before I cross the line? Does that make sense? I mean, this is so powerful because if you can recognize what the progression looks like, if you can recognize that even sometimes you go to sit down at the computer in order because you know where you're going to end up, okay? That is a decision that you make that's still maybe two or three decisions away from actually committing, you know, from falling into that abyss that sort of cycles you down and spits you out, you know? And so if you can catch, the earlier in the process you can catch your habitual sin, the more strength you have, 
okay? In my own experience in different things, I know that there are some times where I find myself and I say to myself, I am going to sin. And there is nothing I can do. I don't care about anything else. All I want to do is sin. And I will come back to God when I'm ready to confess. And I haven't committed the sin yet. But I'm as good as gone. I'm just being honest. Spiritual warfare at this point is non-existent for me. It's just a matter of time. Okay? There is a line that I cross where I know I'm gone. And it's just a matter of time. And in my own effort, I mean, this is why I say spiritual warfare is both outward and inward. It's not just the external temptation. Most of our spiritual warfare is wrestling with our hearts. But as I've looked at my own progression of sin and I've walked back and I've thought, okay, you know what? I did make four or five decisions here. And if I catch myself here, I've got a shot. Because I still have two more decisions to make before I've crossed that point of no return. If I catch myself over here, I can even just keep the whole thing from happening at all. You know, here is where I'm like, oh, I'm not really going to do that. I'm just going to kind of, you know, whatever, right? And then here I'm at where it's like, okay, now it's a little more intentional again. So the earlier in the process you can catch yourself, the better in dealing with your own habitual sins. And this is true for Internet porn. It's true with relationships. It's true with anger. It's true with, I mean, anything that you deal with. The key is to realize how many decisions do you make before you actually sin and the earlier you can catch yourself in the process, and that's where you have to preach the gospel to yourself. That's where you have to find the truths of the gospel that will keep you from going down that road. Okay? And if you're not, the hard part is, if you're not, if your conscience doesn't catch you over here in these beginning stages, you've got to get to the point where you train your conscience to catch you there. And usually then you need help. You've got to talk to a friend. You've got to get somebody else involved. You have to do some real work in lining out what are the decisions because then these what seem to be innocent decisions aren't so innocent anymore because you recognize they're walking you down the road. Does that make sense? And so you got to get yourself to where your conscience catches you earlier on and you listen to your conscience and then you know what are the truths of Scripture that will keep me from walking down this road. Oftentimes for me it's, Gosh, I know what I am on that <laughs> down the road, and I hate that person. I hate that person. When I'm over here, that person's like not so bad, <laughs> honestly. But over here, I hate that person, and I hate what being that guy does to me. I hate all the ramifications of my sin. I hate having to confess it. I hate all that mess. And I love God. I mean, I tell myself, Stephen, you love God. What are you doing? What are you thinking about? Like, why are you even thinking about going down that road? And when I do that, I think, I don't really want to go down that road so much anymore, you know? And, and then I remember, gosh, you know what? I'm different. The person that would go down that road died with Jesus. He's not around anymore. Romans 6 says he was crucified with Christ. So as far as this temptation's concerned, that temptation's looking for a Stephen who's dead. And if I remember that he's dead, then he is dead. And the one who's alive has been raised from the dead with Jesus. And the gospel has breathed new life into the new Stephen. And I don't love that stuff. I love other stuff now. And so, again, I mean, the conscience, David's physical reaction, like that's something that we need to cultivate. When we talked last summer, over the summer, about, about happiness and feelings, there was this great quote about emotions that sometimes our emotions, that's annoying, sometimes our emotions, I'm so angry. No, I'm just kidding. Um, that sometimes our emotions are a gift from God designed to teach us where we are, you know, and we feel uncomfortable. When we feel uncomfortable, that's probably a good thing, right? If we're starting to feel convicted, listen to that. That's your body telling you something's wrong, okay? And so we want to listen to that just like David did. And so what actually does, does David do? Well, he responds to Saul with both honor and love. So David's response is to honor and love Saul. And he does that throughout the rest of the passage. He does it before the men. Verse 6, he convinces them. He's got to hold them back. He gets, them, he gets back and they can't believe their eyes or their ears, right? They can't believe their eyes because he's got this corner of the robe rather than Saul's head in his hands. 
And then you can't believe their ears because now all of a sudden David is saying, you know, this is the Lord's anointed. Forbid it that the Lord should, that I should raise a hand against the Lord's anointed. They're like, what? What do you, we're out here fighting for you. And yet you don't take opportunity here. What's going on here? And David actually has to lead them into into his understanding. And he does that. He honors them and forbids them from attacking. Verse seven, he persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. Because that's the other alternative, right? David, look, we'll take care of it. Your hands will be clean. Another temptation. But David resists. And so before the men, David honors and loves Saul. Before God. You know, one author said, the man after God's own heart does not seize the kingship on his own, but instead he waits for the kingship to be given to him. Good. And then before Saul, he honors Saul both in word and action. When Saul leaves the cave, he follows him out and doesn't kind of hold it up and go, nah, 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 I mean, that's not what he does, right? He honors and loves Saul. He bows down before him on his face. He calls him my Lord, my father. He's recalling the tenderness of their relationship at the beginning. When, when David was a help to Saul's psychology, when David was a help for Saul to calm him down. I mean, there was, a, it, there was an intimate relationship there. And David is calling on that, both in words and in actions. And at the same time, he speaks the truth, but does it in love. He defends himself. And then he calls for God and his justice. And really, the key is, you know, because you ask yourself, like, well, what is it that, that causes David to be able to be this patient? I think there's two things that enable people to respond with grace instead of vengeance. Okay? There's two things that you need to have. Um, the first is you need to experience God's love. If you experience God's love, that empowers you to actually love somebody else. When you realize how you've offended God, that puts into perspective when someone else offends you. And your experience of God's love actually fills you with an ability to then share that love that you've experienced with others. The second thing, and this one's a little bit more difficult for a lot of people, the second thing that enables you to respond in grace and not revenge is the clear assurance that God will avenge evildoers. Okay? Again, this might sound harsh, but it's true. You know, we sometimes make people feel guilty who need this, right? Because, well, why can't you just let it go? Why can't you just forgive? And it's so magnanimous to forgive, and yet tell that to the person whose daughter was raped and killed, right? Tell that to the village that is being ransacked on a daily basis where children are being kidnapped and then brainwashed to become village ransackers. There is real evil in the world and sometimes simply experiencing the love of God is not enough to deal with the depth of the need for justice. Okay? And so in addition to experiencing the love of God, you also need to have clear assurance that God will bring justice against evil. Miroslav Volf has written a book called Exclusion and Embrace, which lines out um, this idea in probably the best ways I've ever seen, I mean, that I've ever been exposed to. And he talks about the only thing that breaks the cycle of vengeance is confidence that there is a God who will bring justice. This is why in the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms, you see the psalmists, sometimes it was David saying, God, bring my enemies down, break their teeth, destroy them. And you read that and go, man, that's harsh. Like, how could you possibly do that? And then you look at David's life and you think, okay, well, uh, (laughs) the only thing that got David, one of the only things that got David through was recognizing that God was going to act and make the wrongs right. You need to have that. 
it gives, I mean, the first thing gives you assurance that God cares for you. And then the second thing helps you realize that there's a reason to actually follow after God. Because if God's not going to bring justice, if God will do nothing about the evil in the world, then what's the point of doing anything? Right? I mean, but the fact that God is going to bring justice gives us confidence and gives us assurance that when we are wronged, it's okay. It's okay now because God will. I mean, this is where God actually says, look, don't return evil for evil. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And the key is for God is that God has the wisdom to know the right time, whereas we don't. We don't. And so with David, we see that our spiritual warfare is both outward and inward. Um, Our second point is that our spiritual warfare impacts everyone around us. It impacts everyone around us. And with David's case, it actually has a dramatic impact on Saul. Okay, What David does isn't just an internal exercise of grace renewal, although it is that. What David goes through is a tremendous maturity and, and an amazing demonstration of his character and what God has done inside of him. And yet it doesn't just impact David, it impacts Saul. His words and actions move Saul. He's taken aback. I mean, I don't know, verse 16 is really odd, isn't it? You know, after this long speech, this is the longest speech we have from David in all of Samuel. And yet as soon as David's finished speaking these words of Saul in verse 16, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? That strike you as odd? I think what's happening here is that Saul, Saul is, I mean, the simple way to say it, Saul is processing what's going on. Okay, you've got to realize Saul for years has been chasing after David. He has had this image of David. David, the, the, the traitor, David, the scoundrel, David, the one who's lying in wait to kill him, David, the evil doer who will take over his throne and wipe out him and all of his family. I mean, this is Saul's picture of David. And yet when Saul hears this voice coming out of the cave, right? My Lord, the king, when he turns around and sees David prostrate on the floor before him on the ground, when, when Saul realizes it's all, it's like, it's all coming together for Saul. You see that? His image of David is being, it was shattered. Like this image that he had of evil David is being destroyed because what he's staring face to face with is the real David. And Saul can't process that. And so for him, it's like, is is that you, David? I mean, this is sort of like a nonsensical, like, I don't know how to, I mean, I guess you you need to experience that in order to understand why Saul seems so odd here. Um, But that's what's happening. And then, he just breaks down and he weeps. He weeps. He weeps. One author said he weeps because he must now face what he has long known. Even Jonathan said, my father Saul knows this. He knows you're going to be king. Saul weeps because he must now confront the truth that he has avoided. In the moment of confronting the reality of David, Saul must face the truth of his own life. No wonder he must cry, for he must acknowledge not only that David will win and that he will lose, but that his whole effort to be effective, powerful, even righteous, has failed. Saul is both tragic and a failure. Beneath both the tragedy and the failure, there is the inarticulate, unmeasured pathos of a life gone empty. Saul must weep. He must weep before God and before David. This is it. For so many people, when you hit this weeping point, that's when you're really acknowledging the truth, right? And weeping for so many is the thing that leads people actually into transformation and change, right? This is part of the process of leading you back. So many people, when they come to grips with what they've done in terms of their life lived apart from God, when they finally realize, when it comes to them for the first time in a long time, that, oh my goodness, I now see the reality of what my life has become, they're moved to tears. And those tears are part of the process of bringing them back, of bringing them back into a relationship with God. I mean, if that's where you are, I would say make sure you come all the way. Don't stop short with your tears 
or with your grief or however you process it. Make sure that you come all the way back and you confess your sins and say, God, tell it to God. Say, God, I am sorry I have lived this way. I'm sorry I've lived apart from you for so long. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for sending a solution to this and that I could trust in him and that you promise that you'll forgive me if, you know, if I trust in his death and resurrection. That's what Scooter did at the end of his life. If you're willing to do that, God will accept you back and you'll, you'll begin a new relationship with him. The worst part about this narrative is that this is what is missing from Saul. Saul actually cries, but then doesn't come all the way back. I mean, it's interesting. He acknowledges his wickedness and David's righteousness. But we all do this, even when we're not serious about it, you know, about changing. Right? How often do you tell others, well, boy, I really respect your position on this, or I respect where you stand on that, or wow, you're really much, you're a much better person than I am. And in our hearts, we know we have no desire to imitate that because it's just be too hard or it's whatever, you know. Um, there is no mention of God in terms of a relationship with God in Saul's words. I mean, Saul says, the Lord's going to bless you, David. The Lord's going to reward you. But there's no sense of Saul coming back. And I struggle with this because actually for most of this week, I was excited because I was going to be able to say, you know what, if you can respond to authority or other people in your life the way David responds to Saul, Saul was converted. Like Saul came all the way back and now is actually in love with God. He's returned. He's repented. And the more I studied the passage, I thought, oh, I want to see it here, but I just don't see it here. And then in chapter 26, you see that Saul is after chasing David again. And there's no sense that Saul actually had anything that changed his life. And so what we see here is that Saul's tears, Saul's response here is really his, his weeping is over the loss of his life. That all that he's working for, everything, all the status that he's put into everything, everything that he's worked for has come crumbling down and he's weeping because of that. Paul talks about, in, I think it's in 2 Corinthians, he talks about there's a sorrow, there's a godly sorrow and a worldly sorrow. And the godly sorrow actually leads us to return back to God. Worldly sorrow just leaves us sorrowful. And the tragedy here is that the only thing that Saul seems to be interested in, the only thing that he actually asks David for, verse 21, Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you won't cut off my offspring after me and that you'll not destroy my name out of my father's house. So even here, as Saul's world is crumbling, as he's realizing the, the, the failure, the tragedy of his own life, the only thing he's concerned about is his name. It's his status. His family. I mean, that's all. I mean, family's good, but I mean, it's, it's his name that he's worried about. If his family dies, then the name of Saul is erased from the, you know, from the earth. still a part of me that's going back and forth on where Saul really is right now, but um, that also highlights the tragedy, just sort of the tragedy of, do you know somebody and you don't know where their relationship with God is right now? I mean, it's just a drag that there are people that talk about Christ, they talk about Jesus, they talk about God, and yet you don't really know where they stand because they don't really seem to have a vibrant relationship with him. You know, and if that's, if that's you today, I would just, I'd say, make it clear. Yes or no, in or out. Like, commit to Jesus. Don't sort of sit on the fence. Don't have one foot in and one foot out. I mean, commit to him. Commit to him. We'll talk about why here in a second, but um, Lainey's grandmother died two weeks ago. And Lainey was up there um, to, like, afterwards just trying to think through or just help her mom and, and stuff process all the, all the, the, the things that go along with preparing for that. And, um, and it was interesting because she was a woman who, whenever we brought up religion, whenever we brought up God, 
she always would just push us away and say, oh, you know what, I watch, I watch the guys on TV, I'm fine, I don't want to hear about it, I don't want to talk about it, you know, I, I'm fine, you know. Um, and Lainey's mom was meeting with her, and they were trying, they were doing some Bible study stuff together, and every time her mom would bring something up, it was always, yeah, well, I know I'm fine, I confess my sins every day, and it was always just like, push it away, push it away, push it away. And, um, and it's interesting because she is someone who's wanted to die for about 10 years or more, just not knowing why she was around, not knowing why she was still, you know, she'd say, I don't know why I'm still around. I don't know what I'm still doing here. I don't know why God has me here. And, um, and she had made it really clear that she didn't want to be resuscitated. If anything happened, no medical resuscitation at all, no nothing. She wanted nothing. Well, she had a kidney failure or both, her kidneys failed. And, um, and it was interesting because when Lainey's mom got the call, she went to the hospital and she found out when she got there that, her grandmother actually had died and they brought her back and it was interesting because up to that time there were a few days where there was no coherent communication and yet so they resuscitated her never told her um, but when she had come back she was really coherent very like lucid and Lainey's mom got to really talk to her quite a bit more so than they had for, for, for quite a while and she said listen I need to talk to you about where you know about what you think about God and where you're going and and and, and all of this and and um, and she said let me just and she just explained the gospel just told her the whole story from beginning to end as best she as she knew how and she was praying and praying and praying and at the end of it at the end of all of her sharing, um, Lainey's grandmother looked her in the eye and said, "I understand," and that was all she said. Um, and then shortly after that, she passed. Now, <laughs> what do you do with that? I mean, no more defensive pushing away. Now it's, I understand, right? And so the kids, you know, so, Daddy, where, where, where's Darcy? Is she in heaven? Well, we don't know. We don't know. I mean, we hope, and here are the reasons to hope, and then here are the, the reasons maybe not. And then it's like, kids, you know what? How tragic is it to not know? I mean, think about that. Do you have a relationship with God or not? I mean, that's the question. It's not an issue of trying to scare somebody into thing. I mean, I'm not saying, look, you all could die. I mean, that might be true for whatever, but I mean, that's not the point. The point is, do you really want to live your life where you don't know, for yourself even, whether or not you have a relationship with God? Do you want to be that uncertain? Do you want to know if your sins have been forgiven or not? I mean, isn't it better to know? I mean, in a sense, that's what's happening for Saul. Saul is coming to grips with reality. He's been giving one more chance, right? Saul doesn't take the opportunity. He doesn't come all the way back. He weeps over his own loss, but has no sense of a relationship with God. And I would just invite you. I mean, the way to know one way or the other, the way to be it's the same answer as how you be successful in your spiritual warfare. It comes down to having the right friend. It comes down to having the right friend. Saul and David, the big difference between them was their relationship with Jonathan. Jonathan shows up in David's life before this. I mean, you think about God's timing, right? You think about the timing of God. God knew that David was headed for this encounter with Saul. And it's almost like in order to strengthen David, God brings Jonathan into David's life one more time to get assurance of the promises, to give David the exact truth that he would need so that he could face this temptation and not commit murder. And Jonathan, I mean, just to condense all this, Jonathan is a picture of Jesus. Right? If you want to experience the love of God and the grace that comes, it comes through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. If you don't know where you stand with God today, it all comes down to, do you believe that Jesus' death paid for your sins or not? Do you believe that his resurrection brings you new life, new hope, and a new reason for living?
I mean, this is, if you believe that, then God says you are in relationship with him and he's your father. To reject that means you don't have a relationship with him. And what's amazing is that the cross not only then gives us that assurance of the love of God, but it also gives us the assurance of God's justice. Okay, both those things that you need to have in order not to to execute revenge. You need assurance of love, experience of God's love, and you need the assurance that God will avenge wrongdoing. The cross proves that God does not ignore sin. Right? I mean, think about it. He actually was willing to sacrifice his own son because he could not forgive without his justice being satisfied. And so when you believe in Jesus, Jesus' death is the punishment for your sins. And you can be assured that for the evil that's perpetrated in the world, when people don't come to Jesus, there is a day coming when God will bring them to justice also. God will do it. You don't have to. You can let go and you can say, God, I trust in your timing. I trust in your wisdom. And I want you to help me understand Jesus. You know, all the wrong that was done against him. I mean, he did this for you. His perfect life. How many times did he face the opportunity where he could have lashed out in revenge? And yet he didn't. Instead, what did First Peter 2 say? He kept entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Goes to the cross for your forgiveness and then sets <laughs> and then gives you the assurance that God will in fact deal with it so that you don't have to. Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. I pray, God, for everyone here. All of us struggle with this temptation to, to lash out, to get revenge, to, to not trust and be patient with you. Forgive us for that and help us to re-experience the love that comes from the cross. When we were chasing after the wrong, instead of executing us, Jesus died for us. And oh, the love that flows from that. God, you will take care of the world's wrongs. We can trust you for that. Help us to do that. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.